And we looked at him in regard to the creation in 15 to 17. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is the one by whom and uh, through whom and for whom all things are created. He's before all things and all things hold together in him. So he is the preeminent one over the creation. But what we see in the next section is that Jesus has parallel functions and priority over the new creation over the spiritual creation also. So somebody want to read 18 to 20. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So, do you see parallels between this section and verses 15 to 17? Firstborn. Firstborn. Very good. What else? There are a lot of verbal parallels. Through him. him and peace through the blood through him on earth and in heaven. Okay, yes, good. What else? In, in him. Yes, good. One more thing that I think is especially important. Look at 16 and 20. All things. All things, yeah. And, and, you know, we just looked at some wording parallels. In truth, there are a lot of conceptual parallels as well. Just go through this and see. He's the head of the body. Now, if he's the head... What would you say the head's relationship to a body is? Control. Control, absolutely. Direction. The head determines what the body does. The, the head also sustains the body in many ways. So he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He's the one that began the, the church. Um, he is the firstborn from the dead. Now, remember what the idea of firstborn is, is not necessarily the first one born. The firstborn instead has what? Yes. So he has the, the uh, um, priority, he has the preference, uh, he has the, the leadership. The firstborn of the dead, Jesus dominates death. He is, he is preeminent over the new creation because he was born from the dead. Now, was Jesus actually the first one to be raised from the dead? No. So if that's what it meant, well, it was false. 
He wasn't the first one raised from the dead. Are we sure about that? Yeah, he raised people from the dead. Yes, he did. And there were a handful of resurrections in the Old Testament too. So yeah, we are sure about that. He wasn't the first one raised from the dead, but he is the one that when he exited, exited death, he had the keys of death in his hand. He is the one over death, and he has the preeminence uh, over the new creation. Um, it says in verse uh, 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now, um, what do you think about the expression, all the fullness? <coughs> Redundant? Yes. Uh, what does fullness mean? Everything. Yeah, and all means everything. So, <laughs> saying all the fullness is like saying really wet water or something like that. Uh, but he's really trying to emphasize then that all the fullness dwells in him. Well, all the fullness of what, do you suppose? He didn't really say there, did he? Might make you, leave you kind of scratching your head. All the fullness of what? Look at chapter 2, verse 9. fullness of deity. Yes. Everything that God is, Jesus is. All of the glory of God is in Jesus. All the wisdom, all of his spirit, all of his character. Everything that makes up God's nature and essence, all that fullness is in Jesus. I think he left it undefined in 19 because really it's hard to even define it. It's so broad. All of everything is in Jesus. Okay, I see. My, my uh, and uh, and dwells in Jesus. Jesus is like the temple. He's the place where God dwells. All of God dwells. Um, now, I think there's a reason why he emphasizes this fullness business. All the fullness dwells in Jesus. Because the false teachers really were trying to get the Christians to believe there was some extra something in their special doctrines. You know, that, you know, yeah, you've got a lot in Christ, but if you had this too, then you'd really be complete. Well, if all the fullness is in Jesus, how much is not in Jesus? None. So anything outside of Jesus will not fill you up it will not bring you closer to God. It is not more real. I mean, anything you want to say about it, if it's outside of Jesus, it's not going to help. Now, he's going to really pick up on that theme in chapter 2, where he really deals with the false teachers. He's going to hammer it home. Uh, because that is really going to be his argument. These guys can't be supplementing Christ. There's nothing to supplement. He's got everything in him. And it, but it's important for us to recognize that because we're tempted to think some other teaching, philosophy, doctrine, spirit, whatever, will, will maybe fill us out even more. And he says that it was God's pleasure that through him he would reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through Jesus' sacrifice, he is able to reconcile all things back to God. And bring God's authority back to being preeminent. You know, through Jesus, everything is pulled back together again. There's harmony restored in the universe through his sacrifice. 
he gains authority over the enemies and he reconciles people back to God. So there's a lot in these verses. I mean, you know, trying to reflect on all that Jesus has done is just incredible. Whether you're talking about the first creation or the second one, he is the preeminent one. And this is just very deep stuff. You know, you could meditate on this and, you know, think through this a long time. Uh, It's hard to really fathom the greatness of Jesus. Thoughts and comments through verse 20. The, the concept of all the fullness dwelling in him. I'm not sure that it should, but it reminds me of he is the image of the invisible God. I mean, the same idea that everything you want to know about God, you can learn by watching Jesus and seeing how he is. You see he's the image of God. Everything that is God is in him. And, and Absolutely, yeah. Because all the fullness of God dwells in him, then he is the image of the invisible God, 100%. There's nothing you see in Jesus that's like, well, that's not God-like. You know, every, every attitude, you know, every uh, behavior, you know, all that stuff is all of it's God-like. Because the fullness of deity dwells in him. So I agree. Other thoughts? We just got done doing First John, where you had the teachers who were kind of saying, like, there's an extra special... Do you think this is similar to that? Like, I, you don't need anything extra? I do think it is, yes. Um, I, I'm not saying they're exactly the same teachers, but I think they had much the same approach right. and probably some similarities. Okay, I was just listening to something about ancient Greece, and so kind of the culture at this time, how they were like some religions that like you had to be like initiated and then they would take you into the special thing and it was super secret and so he's kind of saying like you don't need any of that you've got everything already exactly and that's really the appeal of those kinds of doctrines yes because you get to experience this uh, super special mysterious stuff that almost nobody knows okay yes yes so you're exactly right. That was kind of the culture of that era. Okay. And I think that is the appeal of these things. Okay. Other thoughts? Well, he has made the point that all things are reconciled through the blood of his cross, which leads him to think a little bit more and analyze a little bit more this whole idea of the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished in his death. So 21 to 23. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and earth, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Well, if you want to really look at the reconciliation process, you have to start with the before and then look at the after. How how was the before? Alienated and hostile. That is not very flattering. You know, Paul doesn't disguise the truth. You know, it was bad. And they were alienated and hostile in what area of their life? 
And that led to them being engaged in belief. Yes. Isn't that always the way it goes? The mind leads to the actions. So whether it's the good side or the bad side, the actions reflect the heart. So they had an enemy mind that led them to be engaged in evil deeds. But Jesus has now, this is kind of a before and after, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. You know, they their relationship has changed through the sacrifice of Christ. You know, it, he, he talked about in verse 20 that things on earth, things in heaven were reconciled, but now he's making it personal. You know, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body. You know, Christ suffered in our place to make it possible for the sin barrier to be removed and us to be brought back into communion and fellowship with God. In order to present you before him, here's the goal, the purpose, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That was God's goal. To make us holy, pure, righteous people who could be presented before God as as um, having the, the characteristic necessary to be in fellowship with God. Now that requires something on our part. <coughs> Obviously the main thing it required was Jesus' death. That is the weight of this. But it also is conditional upon our continuing in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away. We have to be faithful, remain faithful to Christ in order to remain in a reconciled state. They had to continue with the hope of the gospel they'd heard, what Epaphras had taught them. They couldn't shift from that or they would risk losing that reconciled state. You know, and without the gospel, there is no hope. It's the hope of the gospel that you've heard. This is the gospel that has been preached to all creation under heaven. As he'd said in verse 6, it in all the world is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is the universal answer to the need to be reconciled to God. It's the universal answer to the quest for spiritual fulfillment. Anywhere, everywhere, it's the gospel that brings people back to God. And Paul himself, was a minister, a servant of this gospel, which puts him in the same category as Epaphras, 1-7, and as Tychicus in 4-7, servants of the gospel. All right, there's a lot in these verses. I mean, this is dense stuff, really dealing with deep concepts of what God has done for us in Jesus. Thoughts and comments? What were those verses for the other two? 1-7 and 4-7. He went back to his idea of needing to be steadfast and constant if you yes. continue. Yes. So if God and Christ did the big hard work, they were the ones that reconciled you and did all of these things. You just need to hang on to what you have believed and obeyed. That's it. Yeah. Which is certainly not the... Uh, major work but it's what we must do to maintain that relationship with Christ which will keep us in fellowship with God mm -hmm. and he's worried they won't so that's why he keeps harping on that yeah. reminds you a lot of Hebrews because that's a yes. theme in Hebrews and for the same reason 
they were being uh, influenced to turn back away from Christ, back to where they'd come from. Other thoughts? Is there is there actually a parallel, or am I not, or am I sort of twisting it? Alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, versus holy, blameless, beyond reproach. Yeah, I hadn't thought about those things specifically, but yes, I mean clearly that's the before and after. Uh, it just seems you know, like yeah. the holy being set apart for a good reason, alienated being torn apart because of a bad thing and hostile in mind versus being trying to decide whether blameless or beyond reproach fits better <laughs> and then engaged in the evil deeds. You know, you can go either way. But Yeah, I don't know if there's a specific correlation he intended, but it's interesting that you've got the three on both sides, so maybe there is. Anything else through 23? Well, him saying, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, is a lead-in to this next section, which really talks more about Paul's role in this whole process, 24 to 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship of God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the ministry, the mystery, which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to all whom God willed to make known to what the riches of the glory of this mystery along, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works with him. So, Paul rejoices in his sufferings. That's always disconcerting. But you see uh, joy connected with sufferings as much as it is with anything else in the New Testament. It seems like there's almost a uh, direct link between them. Why would he rejoice in his sufferings? Help him go stronger? Right, it does do that. It's hard to grow unless there's resistance. You know, we... We mature in tough situations. What does he emphasize here? Suffering is for your sake, for his readers' sake. Yes. He is suffering on their behalf. I think in some ways he's suffering because he's been bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's... uh, you know, they are. So if it weren't for what Paul and others were doing, they wouldn't hear the gospel. What else makes him rejoice in his sufferings? It may be that his sufferings are filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Yes. He is sharing in Christ's sacrifice and suffering and he is actually filling out 
the rest of the sufferings that are to be endured. There is, imagine there's a quota of suffering. Jesus in himself fulfilled part of that quota, and in his body he fills the rest of the quota. And so Paul is filling out some of what's lacking to complete the sufferings of Christ overall. He sees this as a glorious purpose. What a blessing to be able to share in the passion of Christ. The suffering and anguish that he engaged in for our our salvation. You know, we have just got to look at life differently. And rejoice when God allows us to suffer for him. And uh, Paul did. Uh, And he says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit to preach the gospel. You know, the point of the gospel is to be proclaimed, is to be spread. He wanted to fully carry out the work. Here's this mystery that previously was concealed, but now has been manifested. And if it's been manifested, the Lord intends for it to be taken to everybody, to be spread. And that's Paul's role, to manifest to his saints this previously concealed message. And what is the message? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Especially focus on the you, you Gentiles. The inclusion of the Gentiles was not some historical accident. It was a part of the predetermined plan of God that had not been totally revealed as Paul has now revealed it. That Christ is not just in the Jews, Christ is in you, you Gentiles. Of course, it's a major thing that Christ is in anybody. That's a pretty big revelation as well. But he is in the, uh, in the Jews. And he's our hope of glory. We proclaim him, therefore, which is the purpose of a preacher. Proclaim Christ. Not to comment on current events. Not to try to alleviate social problems. But to proclaim Christ. Admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we can present every man complete in Christ. Do you get the impression that he's trying to emphasize every man here? Mm-hmm. And why would he be trying to do that? Because he's trying to stop this spiritual elitism, this caste feeling, this idea that you've got this special group that gets these special, super-duper, mysterious teachings that aren't for everybody, and only the initiated can understand them. No, Paul says we teach, we admonish every man, we teach every man to present every man complete in Christ. Uh, In Christianity, the highest wisdom is open for all. There is not some special doctrine that's only available to that special elite group. And so he's really combated that here. And he finally says in verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works with me. Paul works hard. that, That idea of him laboring is an intense word. He labored, you know, diligently, strenuously. But he didn't labor in his own strength. It was according to the power of the Lord that works in him. Thoughts and comments on chapter 1. It's a pretty pretty big goal for us to not just think of the, the small amount of what, what, what is the smallest amount that I can do, but it's everyone. That should be our goal. That should be our mindset that Everyone that we come in contact with, um, we should be teaching the gospel because everyone should know about the gospel and everyone should know about God. It's a huge goal. What do we more commonly think? 
enjoying the club, maintaining good relationships with other club members. Maybe once in a while we get a new one. But we get focused on our group, not focused on the goal of proclaiming Christ to everyone and and bringing the gospel to everyone. As long as our club's doing okay, we're fine with that, aren't we? You know, do we really have this 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 intense determination to get the gospel spread to more people? It's what you see in Paul. Other thoughts? Well, that transitions now to the specific situation that Paul is seeing, not seeing by seeing, but seeing by hearing, in Colossae. He knows from Epaphras some of the challenges that these brethren are facing, and so he's going to address them more directly now. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. For I want 